When the subject for this episode came up, I found myself grappling with how much of the wider context of its themes I was comfortable with discussing in detail. Naturally, it'd be impossible to discuss Jesus Christ Superstar without touching upon at least a little bit how its lead characters reflect perceptions of the most widely practiced organized religion in human history. That being said, I am not a theologian nor a historian specializing in ancient Palestine. Also, considering that I'd like these podcast episodes to be less than an hour long after edits, there's no goddamn way I can do a comprehensive breakdown of how Jesus has been interpreted by various cultures over the course of 2,000 years. With that out of the way, my impression of Jesus Christ Superstar is that it's a meditation upon how human Jesus Christ really was. The debate over whether Jesus was a human prophet or the physical manifestation of God was a heated issue for the earliest centuries of Christianity, with the latter camp eventually winning out. There's plenty of other stuff that we could get into, whether Jesus was an apocalypse cultist who believed that the resurrection was a literal and terrestrial thing, or if, as later Christians tend to believe, if it happens in the kingdom of heaven instead. There's also the bit about whether John the Baptist was always a part of the story, or if he was a rival prophet who was retconned in so as to win over his followers. There's also the 18th century theories about Jesus being a mythological figure or a composite of several Jewish cult leaders in ancient Rome, although most historians believe that there's ample evidence that Jesus was as real as Julius Caesar or Ovid, even if the miracles credited to him were exaggerated or made up. However, while I personally find all that stuff really interesting, I'm not sure if it's directly relevant to this Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, and I don't think that we'll have space for it. We will, of course, have plenty of other things to say to you all. My name is Ryan, this is A Real Deep Dive. Alright, joining me for this one is my sister Cheryl. Hello! My brother Sylvan. Hi! And, making their debut, Melanie. Hi! Uh, Mel, I believe you're the only person who had any formal academic instruction that's to this part of history, if hey, I'm not mistaken. I, I minored in religious studies. Uh, I'm sorry, I thought your specialty was like colonial New England, and you focus mostly on the Puritan stuff. No, no, not at all. I, I majored in public history with a concentration on social history, and I minored in religious studies. Okay, so we got two. <laughs> <laughs> that said, I graduated over ten years ago now, and I'm a bit rusty. This is going to be stimulating. So, this was Sylvan's pick. Uh, why did I, you Why did you go with this, Sylvan? Because, you know, I like to give you easy films to analyze, like Jesus Christ Superstar and The Wizard of Oz. Nothing intimidating. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I picked this one because um, I really love the music from it, and I thought it would be a great way to pull Melanie into one of these. I love Jesus Christ Superstar. This is my first time seeing it. I've avoided it for a long time because I don't like Andrew Lloyd Webber. I think he's a goddamn hack. I dislike Fan of the Opera. I like Cats even less. People are like, no, no, Jesus Christ Superstar isn't like those. It's the good one. What did you think? Eh. Oh, so sad. You have to watch it again. You haven't watched it enough. <laughs> yeah, it did grow on us. Me and Melanie watched it for the first time after seeing Phantom of the Opera, um, the 2004 one in theaters, and we were expecting more of that. So we were a little bit in shock after seeing this one, um, and then it grew on both of us, and now we're obsessed with it. This was I actually picked up the soundtrack before I got my wisdom teeth out, so I could like listen to that during the surgery, so I could focus on that and not be freaked out. And then they drugged me up so bad that I have no recollection of the surgery whatsoever. <laughs> I have to say, too, I haven't watched it for a long time, but the second time I watched it, 
um, after not liking it the first time was because I had to write a paper for a class on the Gospels. And I thought, oh, well, a movie, that'll be an easy final paper. And that's when I learned to really love it, I think. so. Doing the film analysis? Yes, and I have to say, they do an amazing job of uh, trying to like interpret and integrate as much as they can what's actually in the Gospels, you know, for a crazy movie with Romans and purple life beaters. <laughs> uh, Cheryl, your hot take. Oh, I mean, this movie is a bunch of afros and fringe in the desert in the 70s with everybody belting. Of course I love it. Yeah, there's um, no mistaking what decade this came out in. Half the time the score sounds like a Blood, Sweat, and Tears album. I love it so much. (laughs) All right, plot recap. In case you're not familiar with this Jesus fella, uh, the movie opens with the film's cast traveling by bus to the Israeli desert in order to reenact the Passion of the Christ with modern-day clothes and props. They assemble their props, get into costume, and dance to the film's overture as Carl Anderson, already in character as Judas Iscariot, walks away from the group. Judas is worried about Jesus' popularity. He's being hailed as the Son of God, but Judas feels that he has too much faith in his own message and fears that the consequences of his growing movement could destroy everything around him. He call out Jesus' association with the likes of Mary Magdalene, historically accused of being a sex worker, as well as the fact that Jesus does not give to the poor despite having a lot of money. He's spending it all on fancy ointments because he's a greasy Josh. Meanwhile, temple priests including uh, Caiaphas, uh, Annas, and the Pharisees are worried that the Romans will see Jesus' popularity as an uprising, and they ultimately agree that he must be executed. When Jesus and his followers joyfully arrive in Jerusalem, he rejects both Caliphase's orders to disband the crowd and the suggestions of Simon and the fellow zealots to direct the crowd towards an uprising against the Roman occupiers. Jesus then visits a temple where he is furious to see that it has been taken over by money changers and sex workers and people selling postcards. And (laughs) And a machine gun and some grenades. And the Judas' horror destroys the stalls and forces the vendors to leave. Not with a bullwhip, though. I was disappointed by that. (laughs) While Jesus wanders in the desert and heals a leper colony, although he gets a little tuckered out because they just all want his help at once, Judas goes to the priest and expresses his concerns, along with his worries about the consequences of betraying Jesus. Taking advantage of Judas's doubts, the priests offer him money uh, for leading them to Jesus when he is vulnerable. Yeah, there's a big part of this that sounds like the Batman theme. Uh, Judas reveals that Jesus will be at the Garden of Gethsemane on Thursday Gethsemane. night. Gethsemane, sorry. Gethsemane. 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 Sam. Uh, at the <laughs> at the Last Supper in the Garden, where they pose like the Da Vinci painting. Jesus expresses skepticism about his apostles' loyalty, stating that Peter will deny him and that Judas will betray him. A bitter argument between Jesus and Judas ensues, as Judas angrily accuses Jesus of losing sight of their cause. Judas leaves and returns with guards, as Jesus instructed him to, fulfilling his betrayal, while Peter denies being with Jesus to members of the populace later on. The guards take Jesus to uh, Caiaphas, who finds him guilty of blasphemy. He is then sent to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, but since he does not deal with Jews, Pilate sends him to King Herod instead. In one of the best song and dance numbers of the movie. (laughs) Or the most horrible. Herod urges Jesus to perform various miracles, but dismisses him as a fraud when Jesus refuses. Blaming God for giving him the role of betrayer, Judas is overcome by grief and regret and hangs himself. They decide to go with the hanging himself death. There are a number of Judas deaths. 
I mean, it's nicely cinematic, I guess. So long, Judas. <laughs> Jesus is taken back to Pilate, who believes that Jesus is delusional, but has committed no actual crime. However, he is pressured by the crowd to condemn Jesus to crucifixion. Confused and enraged at Jesus' inexplicable resignation and refusal to defend himself, Pilate realizes that he has no option but to have Jesus executed to subdue the angry masses. Jesus is led to Golgotha, where he says his final words before dying on the cross. The film's cast, now out of costume and character, reunite and board the bus to leave, with Barry Denon, Yvonne Elliman, and Carl Anderson the only ones who noticed that Ted Neely, who played Jesus, is missing. And there was also a really awesome song and dance number in heaven with fringe. The, the Fringe Angels. So much Fringe! Where Judas is, is contemplating whether Jesus came during the right time period or not. Hey, Judas got to go to heaven. That's nice. He came down on a crane. It was awesome. <laughs> it was amazing. That, that is one of my, uh, probably my favorite number. I don't know. J Judas has the best songs and they bookend the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Alright, the concept for a Jesus rock opera, sung largely from the perspective of Judas, came to Tim Rice in the late 1960s when he pitched it to his writing partner, Wait. Andrew Lloyd Webber. Tim Rice? Yes. yes. Dan Rice's husband? Uh, the guy that's, who wrote The Lion Stan King. Rice. That's oh, Dan Rice. Dan Rice? Yeah. Dang a it. poet. I got really excited. I'm like, I know that name! <laughs> When he pitched it to Weber, his regular writing partner, Weber dismissed it as the stupidest idea I've heard in my life. <laughs> Rice, however, was able to talk Weber into recording a studio album based on the idea. Uh, the storyline of the album was based upon the Synoptic Gospels, but uh, also Fulton J. Sheen's Life of Christ was heavily referenced since it gave a good comparison to the overlapping elements of Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke. That being said, greater emphasis was placed on the interpersonal relationships between the major figures, especially Jesus, Judas, and Mary Magdalene. Uh, Rice cited the Bob Dylan song With God on Our Side as a key influence on his process while he was putting the album together. Uh, Herod's song in it is a rewrite of Trident C, a pop tune that Weber and Rice wrote for uh, Lulu for the 1969 Eurovision Song Contest. My knowledge of Eurovision is very limited because I'm an ugly American. I am under the impression that it is a ridiculous circus of um, theatrical nonsense. That is correct. <laughs> yeah, that, that tells with what I know about Eurovision, which mostly comes from memes. Uh, Rita Pavone later recorded and released Try It and See as a single. Also, I Don't Know How to Love Him is a rewrite of the 1968 Rice Weber pop song, Kansas Morning. They just took the melody and threw new lyrics onto it. Is Kansas Morning any good? I'll have to look it up. Uh, the album features a pre-Deep Purple Ian Gillen as Jesus, with Murray Head as Judas, Yvonne Elliman as Mary Magdalene, she was there from the onset, Barry Denon as Pontius Pilate, also there from the onset, and Victor Brox as the High Priest. Uh, the album was immediately banned by the BBC for being sacrilegious, but it sold well despite or because of the controversy. <laughs> it made the top 40 in the UK and did even better in the United States, topping the pop charts completely, ultimately selling 7 million copies worldwide by 1983. Because of this, a stage production debuted in the UK in 1971, but it was a gigantic bomb and closed within weeks. Weber hated the show, claiming that it was disrespectful to the Gospels and his original vision for the, uh, for the story. He was particularly upset by the decision to hire a flamboyant drag queen to play King Herod. 
Unfortunately for Weber's taste, this show proved to be a smash when it debuted on Broadway later that year, <laughs> running for 711 performances and netting to uh, five Tony Awards, including Best Musical. It did not win any of them. Aww. Uh, the musical received many complaints from Christian groups, largely for depicting Jesus as a person and for not directly uh, staging his resurrection or ascension. The musical was banned in South Africa for being irreligious, and it was banned in Iron Curtain-era Hungary for being religious propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> Too religious and not religious enough, you really can't win. Some Jewish groups complained about the musical's depiction of Jews being complicit in Jesus' death. A facet of the Gospels that was emphasized in medieval passion plays that were consciously trying to scapegoat Jewish people for widespread societal problems, including the bubonic plague, and have hung around in Christian discourse ever since. More on that later. Now, director Nor uh, Norman Jewison first became interested in working on a Jesus Christ Superstar movie while he was directing 1971's Fiddler on the Roof. Barry Denon, who was on set in a minor role, gave Jewison a copy of the album when it came out, and he immediately began staging shots from the film in his mind as potentialities. Other directors were already being considered when Jewison formally threw his hat in the ring, but Universal went with him on the strength of his back catalog and a very detailed pitch that he gave. Weber signed off because he figured, hey, he did Fiddler on the Roof. That's a musical with religious themes. I've never seen it. Fiddler oh. on the Roof? Yeah, no, it's good. Tim Rice drafted a treatment that framed Jesus Christ Superstar as a grandiose Hollywood epic in the same vein as Ben-Hur or the Ten Commandments. Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Jew I don't know that that would have worked. The camp is part of what makes this so lovely. Oh, the Ten Commandments is campy. Yeah, that's true. That's Dad getting drunk and just shouting Moses on the lawn. <laughs> <laughs> Is Where's your machine now? Mm -hmm. My friend, well, you guys know Joe, yeah. we, he'd drive around in the car and he'd roll the window down and shout Moses at passersby. I thought he made it up. I had no idea it was from a movie. <laughs> Jewess encountered with a proposal that used a theater group as a framing device and combined period elements with deliberately anachronistic touches. Jewison's take one out, and a full screenplay was put together by Jewison and Melvin Bragg. Bragg and Jewison hammered things out while scouting locations in Israel and listening to the original concept album over and over and over. For casting, Ian Gillen was asked to play Jesus in the proper movie, but he declined. Uh, he has alternatively said that, uh, at different points, that he personally disliked Jewison or that his commitments to Deep Purple were keeping him too busy. So whether he wanted to be polite or not. Yeah. <laughs> David Cassidy and Mickey Dolans were briefly considered for Jesus. Ca oh dear. Cassidy would eventually play Jesus in various stock productions throughout the 1980s. Critics were not kind to him. Aww. Yeah, I can't, I can't even picture that. Among the many unknowns who auditioned included John Travolta. <laughs> Melanie's face right now. <laughs> I wish we could see just a little clip of it. <laughs> uh, no. Producers wanted Can you imagine the why, though? <laughs> producers yeah. wanted someone more experienced, but uh, eventually one of them remembered Travolta while they were casting Saturday Night Fever a few years later. So it ended up working out for him. Among the more established people considered for Jesus included Mick Jagger. No! Yes. <laughs> yes. No! Uh, John... Imagine how horrifying the Y would be with that mouth. <laughs> uh, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, uh, Barry Gibb, and Robert Plant. 
Okay, I could see a Gib doing it. I think Plant could have made it work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that's like the whole Led Zeppelin stage persona, right? You yeah. know, high pitch and like pretending like you're a god. I'm sorry, I'm still stuck on John Lennon. <laughs> <laughs> but could he have done the doubting? <laughs> that's true. You gotta be very doughty in this role. Very Mark. <laughs> Ted Neely, who played a minor part in the Broadway show and understudied for Jesus, was not a major candidate until Jewison, at the behest of Neely's agent, went to see him perform in a stage version of The Who's concept album, Tommy. Neely was sick the night that uh, Jewison attended, but after an apology, they had a 20-minute uh, chat, and that convinced Jewison that Neely was the right choice. He was cast without ever hearing him sing. He must have been very charismatic. Well, apparently he also just had the look. He had the beard and the hair combo, and he was just sort of like chilling in his leather jacket, like nonchalantly, and he's like, he, he strikes me as a Jesus, I guess. You know, <laughs> speaking of the beard, like watching this, this movie on Charles' much larger TV than what I've, I'm used to watching it on, I noticed how patchy it was, and just, uh, there's like this, this trans joke about, you know, Jesus being trans because of the chromosome thing, and just seeing the, the, the patchy beard that's not filled in all the way, it's like, oh, he looks like he's not very far along in HRT either. I like it. <laughs> Made me happy. Carl Anderson understudied Judas in the Broadway production and took over when Ben Vereen fell ill. I can't imagine anyone hearing him sing and having him be an understudy. What the fuck? Right? Ben Vereen also has a very nice voice. Yeah, but as soon as Carl Anderson shows up to do anything, he should just be allowed to do it. Now, Universal did not like Anderson as Judas. Well, and, fuck them. And they had lots of other actors audition. However, Jewison was just like, no, Anderson's the best choice. He's going to be Judas. Correct. 100%, <laughs> yeah. Just to angrily gyrate his hips, climbing up a mountain and singing, like, it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yvonne Elliman and Bob Bingham were also in the Broadway show and, like Denon, sang on the original album. The remainder of the cast was also lifted from the Broadway musical, even though, with the exception of Denon and John Mostel, none of them had done any movie acting. I'm also imagining, based on all of the sunburns we saw in this, that's very little time in the desert. Yes, we'll be getting to that. Uh, the drag queen angle for King Herod was quickly dropped with the assumption that film audiences would find it distracting. Was it dropped or did it just move? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the bit they replaced it with was also quite distracting. <laughs> and there was plenty of drag, it just wasn't on Herod. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes it was. They were all over him. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ Superstar was shot on location at over 20 different places in Israel, including Jerusalem, the Dead Sea, Nazareth, Rhodium, and Beersheba. A good chunk of the $3.5 million budget was subsidized by the Israeli government. Officials were trying to get an Israeli film industry going, and they were trying to court American investment, and as such, got Jewison to write a puff piece for Variety about how wonderful it was to make a movie in Israel, and how accommodating they are to filmmakers. For three and a half million, fair trade. (laughs) He did get a bunch of tanks. Shooting in the desert was as difficult as any other desert shoot that I have described on previous episodes of this podcast. Uh, Cast and crew needed to be hydrated every 20 minutes, and sometimes main actors needed to be carried upstairs because they just couldn't make it. We did see, like, a lot of sweat and sunburns. (laughs) It took several days to clear away all of the fecal matter from the caves at the B. Guvnan National Park. Production moves to the West Bank in the immediate wake of the Six-Day War, which I am not getting into. 
However, uh, I will mention that this led to some unpleasant interactions between uh, cast and crew and some heavily armed Egyptians in the area. Only Superstar and King Herod's song were shot in locations that were planned out before production began. Choreographer Ro uh, Robert Iscove improvised most of the dance routines with cinematographer Douglas Stokeholm just sort of winging it in terms of scene blocking. A lot of this film was just sort of like shot and staged by the seat of one's pants. I mean, yeah, that checks out. Uh, most notably, the final shot of the crucifixion includes a shepherd and some sheep wandering onto the scene. That was an actual shepherd who was uninvolved with the movie. Jewison felt that this mistake was better than the planned shot and kept it in. He's just like, this is my path. This is just where we go. <laughs> I mean, I, I had always thought that that was supposed to be there. It makes perfect sense, so... There's an argument for divine intervention. It might be that. Like, <laughs> the way he was like just down in the shadows. You know? uh, the show was altered in several notable ways from its source material. Uh, the reprise of Everything's Alright was abridged to remove sexual tension between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Also, Jesus shouts, leave me alone to the group of lepers instead of the original heal yourselves. During Judas's death, Caliphate's line is altered from what you have done will be the saving of Israel to what you have done will be the saving of everyone. Maybe to try to appeal, appease people a little bit. Yeah. Trial Before Pilot was expanded for the film. It's the only change that has been retained in most subsequent stage versions of Jesus Christ Superstar. Pilot gets a lot more scenery to chew in the movie than in any prior iteration. Yeah, director's notes for that guy. Ham it the fuck up. <laughs> he wears the fuck out of that cape, though. Yes, that cape does. does not wear yes, him. He does. <laughs> I always felt so bad for him anyways. You know, even like before this, just in the Gospels, he doesn't even want to do it there. You just feel so <laughs> sad. <laughs> Uh, then We Are Decided was written for the movie specifically, probably because they would have something to submit to the Oscars. Uh, the Oscars consider previously existing songs ineligible for the major musical categories, which motivates many film versions of successful musicals to tack on a new song. And it's you... often awful. Yeah, usually it's awful. Then We Are Decided, that's such a weak entry. Why did they think that would do it? <laughs> Could We Start Again, Please was written for the Broadway show and isn't on the original album, but it is included both here and in most later stage versions. I do really like that song. That's mm -hmm. the one that, that sounds like they're, they're, they want to share a Coke with I the world. I love you by the world. <laughs> and they're all kind of like on the mountainside together, isn't that, in the yep. Coke commercial too? Even better. <laughs> Alright, uh, let's get into the cast for this. First and foremost, we have Ted Neely as Jesus. While he has had a pretty diverse career and has been in a whole bunch of things, he is primarily thought of as Jesus, largely because he refuses to stop playing him. <laughs> yeah, Melody saw him in a farewell tour. One of them. There, there are many. <laughs> and you mentioned that he was in his early 60s, but his voice was still glass-shattering. Oh, it was better. It was better, because it had gotten so much more powerful over the years. It was stunning. I was, like, sitting there floored the whole time. Yeah, he's currently 78, and he hasn't ruled out that he'll, you know, keep doing it. I'd go again. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I would absolutely like to see him. 
Uh, one thing that I did know about Jesus Christ Superstar before going into this is a supercut that uh, Lindsay Ellis posted to YouTube of various performers doing the why. And most of them are terrible and ridiculous, especially when the only thing you hear is the why and none of the other context. <laughs> I think Neely's the only one who lands it. We're going to have to watch that after we're done recording. All right, then we have Carl Anderson as Judas. You already gushed over him, but would you like to do some more? Yes. Yes, we shall. I, I don't know. His voice is just so flippin' powerful and emotive, and, like, you think it should be over the top to the point where it's, like, it, it should stop being pleasing, but it works. He just takes you there with him. He wails and growls in the same sound. He's like a Bruce Springsteen lyric. And also, everything about the whole movie is over the top, so if you're the best over-the-top one, you know you're automatically the winner. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think he's the best physical actor in the film. There's the way that he's writhing and straining and the contortions that his face is going through as he's grappling with his decision. I think it was the most emotive and connective and relatable thing that I encountered in this thing. Yeah, um, and like Melanie talked about earlier, you know, he was picked to be in total opposition to Jesus's performance. And he's an excellent stumbler. A lot of stumbling. And yet he never falls. And those Most are like does fall, really crappy looking sandals, so yeah. it's like very impressive <laughs> how much was accidental luck, you know. <laughs> Sullivan mentioned that Anderson was embarrassed by the movie and tried to distance himself from it in later years. Yeah, he wanted a more conventional singing career, so he wanted mm. people to stop associating him with Judas. Um, I tracked down a Christmas album that he recorded, and it was god-awful. He didn't do any of the same stuff that you would know him for in Jesus Christ Superstar, so... Yeah, he's a belter in this. Yeah, he he did not belt on that, that schmaltzy, cheesy 80s Christmas album. Was he trying think... to sound like Nat King Cole and not, not working? Um, more more like a, like 80s cheese. Uh. To be fair, I think it's hard to bring the same sense of urgency to Christmas music that you can bring to the story of Judas. <laughs> I don't know, Oh Holy Night, you can belt that thing. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's people who have made Christmas yeah. albums work. But can you be as, like, traumatized and torn? <laughs> like the little drummer boy? Up on the housetop. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then we have. <laughs> it's on record. Don't worry about it. All right, then we have Yvonne Elliman as Mary Magdalene. When she auditioned for the cast album, she thought that she was auditioning for the Virgin Mary, and then was a little disturbed when it was like, "Wait, this is pretty horny." <laughs> it took me a while to get used to her voice, but now I, I really enjoy it. But the first time I watched this, I was like, "What? I do?" There was some quality to her singing that I could not get behind. I mean, she's best known as a disco diva, so she has a big voice. She just uses it differently than most people with Broadway pipes. Yeah, and I I swear, she takes breaths in funny places. Now that you're saying disco, though, it makes a lot of sense. Well, if she can't have you, she don't want nobody, baby. She can't have you. Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh. All right. Uh, Barry Denon as Pontius Pilate. Uh, he is the queerest person in this, which is... Saying something. Yeah, because this is a theatrical group, but he's the queer-coded villain guy. Surrounded by, what do you call them? The, like, off-brand village people or something? Yeah, they all look like the construction worker. It's most of the hat. 
I do think that the expanded pilot song is one of the film's nicer points. It, it works, and I do like uh, how they depicted pilot being torn between you know his functions and what he actually wants to do. But they're like, hey, you might get demoted. Oh yeah, fuck it, crucify this guy. Yeah, he's effective. Mm. All right, when we have uh, Bob Bingham as uh, Caiaphas. Uh, abs <laughs> and that voice it's so deep it's a weird voice i had a hard time getting used to it yep i wonder what came first the outfits or the abs like did they <laughs> see the abs and then make their choices or well, did like they a, look for the abs like there was a shirt that went with it and they're like no don't put on the shirt just put on the belt thing or right. maybe they were out in the desert and they were like it is too fucking hot dudes and you have us in all black why <laughs> On a previous film I covered on the show that takes place in the desert, the um, Brendan Fraser version of The Mummy, the guy playing Emotep was supposed to be covered in tattoos, but the director was like, you know what, you're too handsome. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe it was that. (laughs) Somebody saw his abs and you're like, you know what, no. (laughs) The director wasn't wrong, he was too handsome. I haven't thought of that movie in forever. All right, we have Josh Mostel as King Herod. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so when I was about like seven years old, our our dad is a big fan of this movie, despite not being a fan of musicals or Jesus, but loves loves, uh, 1970s rock opera stuff. So he was watching this on VH1, and I wandered into the room for just the King Herod song and was very confused. And then you just walked out because you just didn't want any more of what that was. <laughs> well, like, around the same time, he had also watched Rocky Horror Picture Show on VH1, so I was just like, I don't even know, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Something was wrong with movies in the 70s. And, and now I like both of them. I will reiterate that they tried to make that scene less flamboyant, and by most accounts, it is less flamboyant than the Broadway version. I'm so curious. <laughs> Melanie, you've seen it. I don't remember the scene at all on stage. She so was traumatized. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, he's fine in the role. <laughs> he does what he needs to do. His singing voice is a little weak, and obviously the dance moves aren't very professional looking, but lo- it conveys a mood. Yeah, I- he's there to jiggle his muffin top while t- taunting Jesus. But then you've got, like, tumblers and contortionists behind him doing the same dance moves. It's like, oh, this poor man's doing his best. I think he's just supposed to be, like, this decadent... Hedonism bot? Yeah, yeah, he's supposed to be hedonism bot, and it's helped by the fact that he's the only person in this movie who isn't shredded. Yeah. All right, um, for the release and reception, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar made $24.5 million off its $3.5 million budget, and $10.8 million uh, in North American rentals alone. So this made it a pretty big hit. It was the most successful musical of its year, which is saying something because, you know... Godspell also came out then. Uh, the reviews of it were largely mixed. Uh, Roger Eber considered it to be an improvement on the stage musical, which he considered schlocky and crassly commercial. Ebert, in general, is not a Weber fan. I mean, crassly commercial, it's right in the title. Jesus Christ Superstar. We're comparing Jesus to a pop idol. Yeah, he felt that the Jesus in this film was approachable and relatable and that it anchored uh, the audience's ability to connect with it. I agree with that point, but with Judas... I think Jesus, too. He's so upset about everything that's going on. Emo Jesus. Emo Jesus. <laughs> uh, Gene Siskel actively disliked the film and felt that the claims of anti-Semitism leveled against it were well-founded. They're definitely more present than I would like. 
Conversely, Pope Paul VI really liked the film, and he thought that it would make Christianity seem hip and accessible and appealing to young people. <laughs> and then we have people like my dad, who was like, nope, on the whole Bible thing, but got a copy of the album. Despite the pa- Christian, I love it. <laughs> Despite the Pope being into it, many Christian groups denounced the movie, unhappy once again with Jesus being depicted as a young human man who might be interested in sex. Jewish groups also claimed that the film was worse than the stage play. Uh, Jewish encountered with the not very compelling insistence that the film was not intended to be realistic. Plus two, minus the sex bit. The whole point is that Jesus was a man, right? In Gnosticism, Jesus was not really a man, right? But, like, the, the you know, Gnosticism lost out. So in Christianity, Jesus is supposed to be portrayed as a man, right? More on that in a bit. Tim Rice flat out said that he wanted the Jesus and Jesus Christ superstar to be a human person. There's an argument. So, you know, um, Ryan, you already mentioned that they didn't use much from John, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's a lot of people who think that John was actually like a Gnostic gospel that snuck in there because in John, Jesus is much more divine, doesn't suffer the same way, et cetera, et cetera, and seems much more all-knowing. And and John's the the most anti-Semitic of the gospels, right? Uh, No, it's Matthew. Matthew is the one where the angry mob pushes Pilate to crucify him. I swear, I thought John was the one that had a lot of anti-Semitism in it, or was definitely used by anti-Semites, because it's the one that was the latest written. Yeah, that part is true. And so it's after, um, when the early Christian community is starting to define themselves as Christian in opposition to Mm -hmm. the Jews, so it's got some issues. Yeah, John was the only one. I think John was written originally in Greek. It was written in a different language than the others since it came later. Neely, Anderson, and Elliman got Golden Globe nominations in acting categories for comedy or musical that year. They lost to George Siegel and Glenda Jackson in A Touch of Class. I haven't even heard of that one. <laughs> Jesus Christ Superstar also got a Golden Globe nomination for Best Musical or Comedy. It lost to American Graffiti. Haven't seen it. Yeah. It was, for a while, considered uh, the most important film that George Lucas made. Yeah, then it got uh, upstaged. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. I consider it a candidate for a future episode. Jesus Christ Superstar got an Oscar nomination for Best Adapted Score. It lost to The Sting. Neely, later on, was mentioned in uh, Michael and Harry uh, Medved's 1980 book, The Golden Turkey Awards, a precursor to the Razzies. He got a special nod as the worst actor to play Jesus Christ. That's not nice. Yeah, the Razzies in general are not nice, and uh, that particular slam has not aged very well. Yeah, I mean, there have been way worse Jesuses. Uh, Weber hated the movie. Yeah, once again, he considered it a vulgar misrepresentation of his work. Uh, the only iteration of Jesus Christ Superstar that I've heard Weber say nice things about was the fairly recent 2018 TV movie, which won an Emmy. So despite liking a lot of Andrew Lloyd Webber's work, it's kind of, in a, for me, in a very begrudging sort of way where I can recognize that it's a lot very flawed. I have, like, a very love-hate relationship with his music because it's generally really fun to sing along with. Well, also, I, I think of it as, like, junk food where it's also, mm. also kind of bad. So I don't really take his opinions on his, his work or other people's work very seriously. I'll get back to the fact that I do not like Weber, although I do like Disney Renaissance movies, which are very Weberish. Yeah. Hey, now it's time for themes. All right, the easiest one to talk about. Uh, New Hollywood's effect on musicals. 
For much of the golden age of Hollywood, large-scale musicals were the dominant strain of blockbuster. Studios kept sinking money into the ritzy spectacle of the format throughout the decline in box office returns in the 1950s because a massive musical was one of the only things that rival mediums such as television couldn't replicate. The Sound of Music and My Fair Lady were two of the few big successes of the Hollywood studio system of the 1960s, and many pop culture historians consider the failures of Dr. Doolittle and Hello Dolly to be the dad in the heart of the old-school MGM-style Hollywood musical in particular. Uh, we've talked about the New Hollywood movement on this co- podcast before, usually represented as a wave of young, nerdy directors who wanted to shake up the system alongside older guys who never quite fit in uh, with the old ways of doing things and reveled in the new order. Both groups saw the stagey glamour of the classic MGM musicals to be a corny, outdated relic of a creatively bankrupt era that they wanted to subvert and replace. Dude. <laughs> New Hollywood was heavily influenced by Italian neorealist classics uh, such as Bicycle Thieves in 1948, stretching to blow up in 1966. These were films with grounded realities, naturalistic dialogue, and a cynical perspective on the human condition. Heavily choreographed song and dance routines feel like the polar opposite of such fare. New Hollywood, however, was also influenced by the magical realism of Fellini and the postmodern deconstructions of uh, Jean-Luc Godard. More than a few New Hollywood directors also had sentimental appreciation for Golden Age Hollywood and wanted their work to reframe the old formulas through new perspectives rather than burn everything to the ground. Some of these filmmakers even took a crack at doing a New Hollywood take on the classic style musical. We covered one of those in a previous episode, um, Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise. Yay! It didn't work. Most New Hollywood... Most New Hollywood attempts to do a musical failed pretty miserably. Martin Scorsese's New York, New York. Um, there were a couple of successful ones. I think one of the more obvious ones was Cabaret. I also like Cabaret. Yeah, because, you know, that one is very postmodern deconstructionist take on classical MGM musical formats that also starred Liza Minnelli, who Yay! has a sort of legacy connection to classic MGM musicals. And and can sing and dance. You know, they had her dress like her mom, but also had all of the actors backstage sucking and fucking each other in various gay ways. I maintain one of the reasons why I just like the golden age of Hollywood musical is because it was not afraid to be a musical. Jesus Christ Superstar occupies a novel position in the musicals produced in the immediate wake of Hello, Dolly's Failure, a period where it was considered embarrassing to do a a classic-style musical. Uh, Its deliberate artifice, notably visualized as the theatrical troupe at the movie's onset, reflects the aforementioned postmodern flourishes of the French New Wave. It was very trendy for a while to remind audiences that they were watching a movie and to use this to comment upon how cinema manipulates the viewer and distorts reality. Deliberate artifice, of course, is another way to mask a limited budget. (laughs) We've talked about how German filmmakers in the 1920s embraced expressionism by using intentionally fake-looking sets and theatrical lighting. Uh, This could be argued as revealing the psychological interiority of the characters, but it also gave German studios a way to make their films stylish and attention-grabbing despite their inability to match Hollywood budgets. Either way, I think Tim Rice's pitch to make Jesus Christ Superstar match the spectacle of Ben-Hur was pretty unrealistic for a musical that was made in 1973. All I can think of right now is when um, the Pharisees are standing on the scaffolding just, like, banging on it. (laughs) He is dangerous. (laughs) 
Because that, that is the lowest budget looking moment of the whole film. Well, nobody's slapping coconuts together. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, the next point I wanted to make was the surge of religious themed movies in the late 60s, early 70s. This era of the 20th century marked a decline in church attendance and rising secularism in Europe and to a lesser extent North America that has continued to the present day. Woo! We're winning! Despite this, a wave of spiritually conscious films all hit theaters during the early years of New Hollywood. Around the same time as Jesus Christ Superstar, we see Rosemary's Baby, Godspell, The Exorcist, Gospel Road, A Story of Jesus, The Omen, Brother Sun, Sister Moon, Greaser's Palace, Monty Python's Life of Brian, and many others. So spanning a whole bunch of different genres there. While participation in traditional churches was dropping off, the hippie community was susceptible to a revitalized spiritual movement loosely based upon ancient pagan beliefs and or Eastern disciplines like Hinduism and Buddhism. The umbrella term for this wide spectrum of concepts, religious and scams, became known as New Age. And one can see a lot of its iconography in Jesus Christ Superstar, I think. It is a whole bunch of dirty hippies, yes. <laughs> Uh, Jesus Christ Superstar also came out at the height of the Jesus Movement, a reactionary campaign that was um, sort of pushing back against the previously mentioned decline in church attendance. You see, the people who didn't leave the church decided to dig in their heels, and especially in the American South, began embracing supernatural components recorded in the Acts of the Apostles, but not practiced for decades, if not centuries, uh, most notably speaking in tongues. And, you know, faith healing and that sort of thing. Uh, the Jesus movement was heavily influential in the formation of the evangelical right wing and uh, the alliance it formed in the Republican Party on the onset of Ronald Reagan's election in 1980. Oh, come on, Ryan. We don't need to drag this podcast that dark, do we? <laughs> its reliance on charismatic pastors may have led these groups to bestow messiah narratives on chosen leaders like the Falwells or Billy Graham or in the modern day Joel Austin and Donald Trump. Yes, we're going here. Uh. <laughs> this group is notable for its pushback to women's reproductive rights in the wake of Roe v. Wade and also LGBTQIA plus equality. There are also connections between the Jesus movement and mesmerism, a spiritualist pseudoscience from the late 19th century that said that um, the thoughts that you produce will result in direct action. Yeah, Hawthorne was into that shit. Uh, yeah. that, that carried over to right-wing Christian assholes? Uh, yes. You see, mesmerism was a big influence on the prosperity gospel. Oh, okay. Well, then yeah, now it's a... Um, guy who founded that. What was it? Was it like Charles Mesmer? Uh, yes, Charles Mesmer. Yeah, it, ha it doesn't have anything to do with, like, hypnosis or magnetism, both of which are real things. Yeah, uh, one of the main characters in the House of the Seven Gables novel is a mesmerist. Prosperity Gospel uh, was a riff on Max Weber's uh, 1904 book that coined the Protestant work ethic as a term. The basic idea is that while Jesus opposed materialism pretty forcefully on the Sermon on the Mount, God still favored his devotees with riches as a reward for their piety. As such, all wealthy people are virtuous, and every poor person is an impure failure who hasn't prayed and bootstrapped hard enough. You can see why this would be appealing towards um, right-wing evangelicals. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus Christ Superstar was, even in its time, labeled as an attempt to market to the Jesus movement. And it worked to a point, at least the ones that weren't offended that Jesus got horny sometimes. Huh. 
But uh, this is widespread throughout all of those previously mentioned movies. Famously, exorcisms were considered an embarrassing relic of the Dark Ages until that movie made them cool again. Now pastors <laughs> are using that to cure gay people, and that's just great. I, I should also mention that this wave of Christian movies was actually pretty novel for the time. If you look at the history of Hollywood in the preceding 50 years, it's alarmingly secular. I mean, there were exceptions, C.C. DeMille's uh, biblical epics, for example, but even those were very heightened and not particularly reverent. I mean, if you look at the Ten Commandments, it's not that different from, like, Jason and the Argonauts or films that embrace classical Greek mythology. But it's probably not so much that Hollywood became more religious so much as, like you already mentioned, as society became more secular, it became more of an appropriate topic to interpret through movies. Yeah, I do think that that's a part of it. And when they did biblical epics in the 1950s, it was largely a way to get around the Hayes Code. Uh, they found that film censors were less likely to strike things down if the sex and violence had biblical source material. So it was cynical, but just in a different way. That's kind of awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the next thing I wrote down was the human Jesus. Well, we've already touched on that a bit. Whether Jesus was human, divine, or both simultaneously has been an ongoing debate in Christianity since its inception. Various sects will provide various answers. In Catholicism, both at once. Yeah, the Gospels themselves do not present any clear answers, but Jesus is said to have experienced very human emotions such as hunger, pain, and temptation. Depending on which century you're looking at, the most popular interpretation of Jesus' nature in Christian society could be very significantly. The First Nicene Council in 325 AD established that the Trinity was a co-equal and co-eternal form. From then on, it was common to argue that Jesus was both fully human and fully divine. That being said, many Christians get rankled if it's implied that Jesus was a little too human. Jesus Christ Superstar caught some flack for this, but in terms of the 20th century, the most notorious example was probably Nikos uh, Kazantzakis' uh, 1955 historical fiction novel, The Last Temptation of Christ, which uh, infamously portrayed Jesus as capable of sexual desire. This drew large-scale censorship efforts, and Martin Scorsese's 1988 film adaptation ignited similar controversy, and also just, you know, Willem Dafoe's Jesus. And yet by the time we got to Dan Brown, nobody cared. Oh, there are still people who are pissy over it, but, you know, it had been done a few times before, so only the people who wanted to be performatively offended were feeling that way. Mm. Right, the last thematic point I wrote down was blaming Jews for the death of Jesus. I originally wasn't going to talk about this, but it kept coming up when I was putting my notes together, so it felt remiss for me to leave it out. Uh, modern societies routinely use the death of Jesus as a justification for anti-Semitic laws, policies, customs, and atrocities. The Gospels depict Jesus as being tried by a group of local community leaders before being handed over to Roman officials for crucifixion. In the book of Matthew, Pontius Pilate famously second-guesses his decision to execute Jesus, but is swayed by a bloodthirsty mob. This is frequently seen by um, anti-Semites as a conflict between Jews and Christians, but that ignores Christianity's origins in Judaism and the fact that Jesus himself was Jewish, and also Christians weren't a thing until after Jesus was dead. If you look at it, the only Gentiles in any of those trial scenes were the Romans themselves. 
Uh, while Jesus' rabble-rousing could be easily interpreted as a threat to the Roman state, it's questionable whether Jesus would have been perceived as such by local religious leaders. Apocalyptic prophets with a reputation for performing miracles were not an uncommon fixture in that part of the world at the time. Even in Jesus Christ Superstar, just like, you guys are minting messiahs by the bagful. Um, John doesn't show up in this, but there's a theory, you know, um, that, you know, John was another you know, apocalyptic cult leader, and when he was beheaded, the whole, you know, the Jesus cult kind of took over his followers. Oh, because that's never happened with Christianity yeah. before. <laughs> Pope Paul VI, that guy again, officially discredited the notion of Jewish deicide in 1964, while the Quran explicitly states that Jews were not responsible for Jesus' death. Still, the urge to blame the Jewish people as a whole for Jesus' execution has never quite gone away, and its tropes are present both in this film and in several other noteworthy pop culture depictions of Jesus including Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Yeah, I mean, I think that one's, like, the, the most infamous, right? Yeah, well, I will not be doing an episode on that film. Um, and this one, like, honestly, there there is the bloodthirsty mob scene, and honestly, I think it reads okay if you ignore what all of the anti-Semites like to say. But yeah. unfortunately, it does exist in a world where we know about those tropes, so it makes that part uncomfortable to watch. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a matter of the interpretation watching it, right? Because, you know, the movie doesn't highlight the like the su like the suffering the way like the passion of the Christ does or kind of sticks to I guess like the facts as they are in the gospel to some extent, right? It doesn't really push that narrative. It doesn't try to claim Jesus is not Jewish or like from a separate society, right? What gets me about this controversy is that the way it was drilled to me in my Sunday school and CCD classes was that the point of Jesus' death is that it was faded and also necessary. Jesus knew it was coming, and he could have gotten out of it at several instances, but chose not to. His death is the event that enlightens and redeems the very people who persecuted him to begin with, and it is supposed to be, at least according to many branches of Christianity, the resolution of original sin. Also, if you read the Gospels themselves, they're pretty light on detail when it comes to the crucifixion. They don't treat it like a big deal. It's mostly the before bits where he's teaching you things, and then the resurrection and the ascension. That's the stuff that they care about. Well, plus, crucifixions were very common, right, as a as an execution method by the Romans, so it's not like it was a, I mean, not like it was a special thing. No, I'm, that I'm, way. I'm not sorry. They wouldn't do it to um, Roman citizens, but they, they would do it to, like, foreign states that they were occupying. They did it to Xena. They did do it to Xena. <laughs> sorry, that's why oh. I was laughing. And one point that Melanie brought up while we were watching the film is that when Jesus is flogged, it is not mentioned in Scripture how many times he, he got flogged, how many lashes he got, but in the film it is clearly stated stated to be 39, and Melanie looked it up, and that was the Jewish penalty for flogging. Mm -hmm. And as far as you could find, the Romans didn't have anything specific, so, uh, yeah. But it also wasn't the film that came up with that. There's other, there's other tradition for that. I wouldn't be surprised if the filmmakers put the anti-Semitic stuff in there without realizing what they were doing, just because it was just part of the wider culture. Not that that excuses it or anything, but eh, it's learning opportunity for later generations, I guess. They certainly weren't leaning into it as hard as Mel Gibson. <laughs> Nobody leans into it as hard as Mel Gibson. <laughs>
Uh, yeah, languishing upon Jesus' suffering like Mel Gibson was a medieval fixation, and, uh... Plague-influenced. Yeah, read your Bible. You'll be surprised at how little time they spend on it. Um, in my class on the Gospels, one of the, um, the stories the professor really enjoyed telling was that, um, you know, when, of course, in the early years of Christianity, Christianity was just like a, you know, a kind of a movement of Judaism. It was obviously not a separate thing, even, you know, for, I can't remember how many, like, hundreds of years, but, you know, it was just a kind of Judaism. And um, when the consciousness kind of kept growing of Christianity as separate from Judaism, one of the questions started to become um, if obviously most Christians had started as Jews and then were converted and if you were Jewish you had to be circumcised but if you were Christian you didn't have to be circumcised so what did you do if you were already circumcised and obviously nowadays that's not a problem but for a while um, some people thought that you couldn't be Christian if you had been circumcised and so they developed pre-anesthetic an operation to carve the circumcised penis to make it look circumcised and she tells this story and she's looking around the whole class and she says I love telling this story and watching every guy in the class cross their legs This issue was resolved in one of the later Gospels, the Book of Timothy. Uh, That one, the main question being uh, settled is whether you can convert Gentiles to Christianity or if they have to become Jews and then they can become Christians. And since Christians wanted to beef up their numbers, they sort of landed where you thought that they would. And the symbol of this was, you know, the prophet falling asleep and then having a dream where God appears before him with a banquet laid out. And there's all these things on there like pork chops and shrimp and he's like these are unclean animals I can't eat these he's like these are my creations why are you offending me by refusing to eat them nothing is unclean you are all my children he wakes it up and he's like all right that means we can convert the Gentiles and um, Christians also interpret this as bacon being okay (laughs) Jews and Muslims not so much Also in the early days, um, your spouse was automatically saved. If you were saved, your spouse just came with you, whatever they believed, because they so needed the numbers. Yeah, there's a lot of debate over how one gets saved. Uh, There is a lot of you have to accept Jesus Christ as your personal uh, savior. There are actually not that many passages in the Bible that support this perspective. A lot of people believe that since Jesus died on the cross and therefore countermanded original sin, as long as you lead a life of virtue and do not actively oppose Jesus, you get to enter the kingdom of heaven, whether you're a Christian or you're a Jew or you're a Muslim or even an atheist, which is, you know, very sporting of them. And then there are, of course, Calvinists who believe that you are marked from birth and there's nothing you can do about it. That's never been particularly popular, but it's always hung around, usually in lunatic fringe groups like the Westboro Baptist Church. I love that um, supposedly Jesus kind of wiped the slate clean a little bit, but everybody is so obsessed with original sin. Like, it's so baked into culture. And just even thinking about, um, even thinking about, like, um, like how we think about people who are guilty of like crimes right and um, worldview you you see it come up all the time I was an East Asian studies major and it's just so different sometimes like the thinking when you don't have this sort of original sin idea on the back of your society right even if it's not your religion how much we kind of take that in you know, recovering Catholic that I am, you cannot take all of the Catholic out of me, even though I do not believe in the structure of that organization, even remotely. I was confirmed by Cardinal Law. That was um, pretty telling for me. 
But uh, anyways, that's everything in my notes. Uh, before we close things out, is there anything that any of you would like to say about Jesus Christ Superstar in parting? So 70s. Not enough afros. Just kidding. This movie had just enough. <laughs> Agreed. Perfect. <laughs> Why? <laughs> so long, Judas. So long.